You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So 10 weeks ago today, we were in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. It was part 2 of our Rooted series. And in that sermon, as we dug into the great passage of Ephesians 3, I, I tried to make the case that the cosmic centrality of Jesus is expressed in the radical reality of the local church. And that expression is seen and felt and known when we as the church love one another. Our love as the church, our love for one another is absolutely essential. We cannot be what God intends for us to be without loving one another. Our love for one another is what affects our corporate maturity. It's how we grow. We, we saw that. We, we looked at that. We get that. Love is essential for the church. But how do we do it? H- how do we love one another? And I, I don't mean by that, what are the practical examples of how we love one another? I'm talking about what, where does our love for one another come from? Like, where do we get the energy or the, the resources that we need to love one another? Because that's what we need. That's what, that's what we most need, right? The reason that I, I think we, we might lack love is not because we don't know of loving things to do. It's because we, we don't feel like doing them. And that's where I think the Apostle Peter helps us because Peter's main point in today's passage is is the command there in verse 22 that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And when he says this command, he surrounds it on both sides with supports. And these supports become like resources. So, So Peter, he makes the case here for why we should love one another, which also tells us how. We love one another. And I want to try to summarize this in one sentence, okay? And this one sentence is the the one point, the one and only point of this sermon, okay? This is a one-point sermon, and this is it, okay? Love one another because your belief in the gospel results in loving one another and because the gospel you believe is living and lasting. I'm going to say it again because it's seriously the only point of the sermon. Okay, This is the only point. Here it is. Love one another because your belief in the gospel results in loving one another and because the gospel you believe is living and lasting. And so for the rest of our time, we're just going to unpack this sentence. We're going to look at this sentence in two parts and then we're going to consider the difference that this makes when it comes to our love. Okay, Let's pray and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we ask now, send your Holy Spirit to teach us in the unfolding of your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, one point sermon. This is part one of the one point. Love one another 
because your belief in the gospel results in loving one another. And this comes straight from verse 22. Look at verse 22 for a minute. Notice there that the main command comes at the end of this verse. This is the end of verse 22. Right before verse 23, there's this sentence, this command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, that's Peter's main point. That's the command. That's the main point. And he gives it two supports. The first support comes before the command, and it's part of verse 22. That's the first support. And then the second support comes after the command in verse 23. Okay? Right now, we're going to focus here on this first support in verse 22. Okay? This is verse 22 right here. We're going to focus on this. Peter says, having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, therefore, is implied, love one another. So the first line there in verse 22 is his support for this command. It's the reason that Peter is giving, but how exactly is it a reason? How exactly does this purified your souls deal? How does that support our loving one another? So grammatically here, this, this word, having purified, is a perfect participle, which means that Peter is talking about a past completed action that has ongoing current effects. We have, we have purified our souls or our hearts, so they are pure, which means it's this idea of being consecrated. Our souls, our hearts have been cleansed. We have been set apart. Now, how did that happen? Verse 22 says, by your obedience to the truth. That's what Peter says, by your obedience to the truth. Okay, so what is that? Well, our obedience to the truth is referring to when we believe the gospel. It was the event when we embraced the gospel by faith. That embrace of the gospel by faith, that was our obedience to the truth. The New Testament talks this way about conversion. Within the book of 1 Peter itself, three different times, the apostle Peter describes unbelievers as those who disobey the word or the gospel. One example of this is chapter 4, verse 17. I'll read it to you. Chapter 4, verse 17, Peter says there, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So unbelievers are those who do not obey the gospel of God, which means that believers are those who do obey the gospel of God. But wait a minute, I thought that we're supposed to believe the gospel. What's this about obeying the gospel? Well, this is where I think the apostle Paul helps us. When it comes to Bible reading, this little Bible reading hack here, when it comes to Bible reading, a lot of times the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So if we're reading and we have a question, we should first think, hey, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? Does the Bible say more about this? And when it comes to the obedience of faith, it certainly does. Because in Romans chapter 1 verse 5, when Paul describes his apostolic ministry, he uses this phrase, the obedience of faith. Paul says that as a missionary to the nations, he wants to bring about 
the obedience of faith from among the nations. He wants to bring about the obedience of faith. And this highlights something very important about the gospel itself. It's that part of the gospel message includes the command to believe. And I want to take a, a few minutes here and explain how this works. I just want you to know it's going to take a few minutes, so just hang with me, okay? Give me a minute, all right? The gospel, this is the gospel. The gospel of God is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for sinners. Amen? That's good news. Jesus was perfect and faithful in every way, but he sacrificed himself in our place. On the cross, Jesus took our sins and our guilt and our shame, and he suffered the punishment from God that we deserve. Jesus died for us and was buried for us, but then on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead for us and exalted to the Father's right hand, and He is coming again to judge the world. And until that day, until the day of His coming, anybody who turns from their sins and puts their faith in Jesus will be forgiven. We'll be saved from judgment. We'll be brought into fellowship with God. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel message. And in that gospel message, when we hear, when we hear that good news, when we hear that gospel message, there is no possibility for us to be neutral. You either believe the gospel... Or you don't believe the gospel. There's, there's really no middle ground. If you believe the gospel, you obey the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, you disobey the gospel. And a great example of this we see is in the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching his famous ser sermon in Athens... And in the sermon, he gives this amazing panorama of God as the creator of all mankind. And he crescendos his sermon with the supremacy of Jesus. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul ends his sermon in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, namely Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And this is the response to what Paul said. Verse 32, Acts 17. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. Hear the response there? It sounds like Luke is describing three categories of people because some mocked, some said, let's talk more about this later, and then some believed. It sounds like three categories. But there are actually here just two categories. 
Because the mockers and the procrastinators both did not believe. Right? Now, the procrastinators may have been nicer than the mockers. But they're doing the same thing. They are not believing the gospel. They are disobeying the gospel. And this gets at what's called the urgency of the gospel message. When you hear that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, and that by turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus, you will be saved. When you hear that news, there is an urgency embedded in that news that you should believe it. There's an urgency in that message that you should embrace it because that honors Jesus. Jesus did not do what He did as a suggestion. Instead, He he accomplished a salvation that is announced. And when you hear the announcement of what Jesus has done, and you do not trust Him, you disobey the Gospel. And that applies to this exact moment. In real time. Right now. Right now, the Gospel invites all of you. All of us. The Gospel invites all of us to believe. And so if you're here, Right now, if you're here and you've not yet trusted in Jesus, if you're still kicking the tires on this thing, now is an opportunity for you to stop disobeying the gospel. Now is an opportunity in this exact moment. Now is an opportunity for you to turn from your sins to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? All right. Inside note, back to verse 22. Verse 22, Peter tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe the gospel, we are obeying the truth. This is how we purify our souls. Verse 22, again, the beginning there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, which means you believe the gospel, you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven, you've been set apart. Now what are we set apart for? Verse 22. For a sincere brotherly love. Did did you know that your belief in the gospel, your conversion, you being saved, is unto, is for, results in you loving one another. This is the state that we as believers are in. We have purified our hearts by our faith in the gospel, which means we have been set apart to love one another. This again emphasizes how essential love is for the Christian. It's as basic as wearing your baseball glove on the correct hand. I'm coaching youth baseball again. And my stress level's through the roof. And I have practiced 
this afternoon, I got a headache already forming as a like our main our main team goal once again, four years running is is just no kid get hit in the face with the ball. That's that's it, man. It's like we put our hands together in the circle. Team goal, guys. No one get hit in the face. Just kind of listen. You got to pay pay attention. Uh, it feels audacious at times because in the age range that I'm I'm coaching, um, there's an extreme gap in skills. It's just the age of where these guys are. Uh, there are some kids who can hit it far and throw it hard, and then there are other kids who don't know which hand to put their glove on. Right? The most you've heard this. The most like common baseball advice there is is what keep your eye on the ball this is like that's the most common baseball advice ever but did you know but before you can even do that you have to know what glove to put what hand to put the glove on right this is like knowing what hand to put the glove on it's like it's not even basic it's like before basic it's like it's i mean it's just i don't it's just expected it's just like, it's like it's part of it just like love is for the Christian, see? Just like love is for the Christian. The Christian life, like baseball, gets a lot deeper, okay? But loving one another, church, it's like putting your glove on the correct hand. We've purified our hearts by our faith in the, in the gospel, for our loving one another. Therefore, love one another earnestly from that pure heart. Do you get what Peter's saying here? He's saying that the result of our faith in the gospel is the same as this command. It's to love. Peter is saying, do what you've been saved to do. It's that simple. Okay, that's part one of our one-point sermon. Love one another because your belief in the gospel results in loving one another. Here's part two. Love one another because the gospel you believe is living and lasting. This is the second support to the command. It comes after the command at the beginning there of verse 23. See, it's this hand right here. The command again, the command which is right here, at the end of verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The second support says, verse 23, since you have been born again. Now, grammatically, in the original, this is just one word, and it's a perfect participle, just like at the beginning of verse 22. So there's a beautiful symmetry here that I want to point out to you, okay? The beginning of verse 23, which is right here, is an exact parallel to the beginning of verse 22. And they both support this command to love one another. Verse 22 is the first support. Verse 23 is the second support. And what's fascinating about both of these supports is that they're both talking about our conversion. They're talking about how we are saved. When we are born again, in verse 23, that is when we believe the gospel, in verse 22. But here's the difference in the two supports. 
Verse 22 is the human action in conversion. Verse 23 is the divine cause of conversion. These are two aspects of the same event. The human action is our obedience of faith. It's when we, we really and truly repent and place our faith in Jesus and His gospel. We must do that. This is our action. We must trust in Jesus. But in terms of how we do that, God has caused us to be born again. Just like Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3, He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so this image of being born again is called the, is called the new birth. And the new birth is a game changer for how we think about salvation. It means, the new birth means, that for every Christian there is, every Christian in this room, we had as much to do with our new spiritual birth as we had to do with our original physical birth. To be clear, none of us decided to become a human being and be born. God did that. And mom. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Seriously, moms, thank you. In the same way of our original physical birth, spiritually, we had no life. No life. Zero. Nothing. We, we were dead in our sins. The Bible tells us. There was nothing until God made us alive. And He made us alive through faith in His Word. He, God, calls us to be born again. And us being born again, what did we do? We believe. Our first breath, so to speak, of the new birth is our faith in the gospel. Okay, so verse 23, verse 22 is here, verse 23 is here, being born again. Our first breath of being born again is our faith in the gospel, verse 22. God, we believe the gospel, verse 22, because God has caused us to be born again. Our faith, our faith is a gift from God so that we get saved and God gets the glory. It's the way he's designed it. This is what being born again highlights. God is the causer, not us. And Peter says, this is another reason why we love one another. He continues to explain, verse 23, we're born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So it's not just that God calls our new birth, he calls it through his word, and his word is not just any kind of word, his word is living and abiding, which means his word gives life that lasts forever. And this is different from perishable seed. All the life in this world including 
the lives of our enemies is ordinary and perishable because it is from perishable origin. That is true of this world of exile that we live in. It's our surrounding. It's everywhere. But now, Peter says, now, right in the middle of all of this, the Word of God has given life, has given life to something that is new. And because that seed, that Word is eternal, this new life that we have in Christ is eternal. But how do we know, though? How do we know that this Word is eternal? Well, Peter can prove it. Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7. Peter says, for, this is the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah when he says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Peter comments in verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Which is maybe, this is maybe verse 25, is maybe my favorite verse in this entire book. You guys ever been online or social media and you guys seen that meme with like the thug, the thug sunglasses meme? This is a Gen Z thing, maybe. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? It's like if someone says something like really cool or, you know, or whatever, it's like boom, all of a sudden those like thug life sunglasses appear. Okay, you track it. All right. Well, I imagine that when Peter says, verse 25, those, those sunglasses appear, okay? So if you can, imagine that. Because this is what, this is what Peter's saying. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. I, I hope the confidence I want us to have in the Word of God. Verse 23, verse 23, Peter says that the word of God is living and abiding. The word of God gives life, it lasts forever. And then in verse 24, he gives a, a proof, he, he grounds it, he grounds that statement with the prophet Isaiah, when Isaiah says, the word of the Lord lasts forever. And we can see pretty simply here how these are related. Peter says the word of God lasts forever. And Isaiah says that the word of the Lord remains forever. And we might think, okay, well, the apostle Peter is making some kind of vague, isolated proof text connection. Right? Except that Peter makes sure that we cannot think that. Because he says, Peter says in verse 25, that the word of the Lord that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 40 is exactly what I'm talking about right now. It's the gospel that we have preached. It's the gospel that you have believed. See, in chapter 1, verse 25, it is the best application I can imagine of verse 12 from a couple weeks ago. Isaiah said it for us. This is for us. Peter is making that application. And if we turn back to Isaiah 40, if we look at the context there, Isaiah in Isaiah 40, he is speaking to 
discouraged exiles. The people of Israel were in Babylon as exiles. They were living in a world of enemies. And Isaiah comforts them with God's promise to come and save them. Isaiah says, hey, these enemies around you, these people, they're grass. But the word of the Lord the promise that God will come and restore us and bring salvation, that word will remain forever. And the very next verse in Isaiah 40, verse 9, Isaiah calls that word the good news. He says, get up, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. God is going to save his people. And Isaiah calls that good news. And so Peter, who is also speaking to discouraged exiles, he reads Isaiah 40 and he says, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The word of the Lord, the good news that God will save, that Isaiah mentions, that is the good news about Jesus that we preach and that you believe, and it's living and lasting. It gives life that will never end, and that's why, that's how you love one another earnestly from a pure heart, even in the midst of exile. See? Even when you're surrounded by enemies, when you're in suffering, entrenched in hardship. Remember the case Peter's making here, the one point of the sermon. Love one another because your belief in the gospel results in loving one another and because the gospel you believe is living and lasting. The difference that this makes, the difference this makes is that we can love one another no matter our circumstances. When we started, I said that our question, the question is not so much the practical things that love would have us do. It's not, it's not that we don't know what's loving and what's not. The issue is, where do we get the energy to love? What is our resource for loving one another? And this is important because in as much as legit Christians are bad at loving one another, I think it's because we look for resources in the wrong place. And the wrong place we look is the world. Do you know the, the worldly resources for love? Do you, know, do you know what the world's resource for love is? It's a context of convenience and control. So you want to love one another. The world says, okay, great. Well, here's the context that you need to love one another. First, it has to be convenient, which means it has to be easy and easily recognized, which means it has to be popular. This is big brush kind of love. This is the kind of love you can post on Instagram, okay? It's not specific, nuanced, personally directed love because that, that, that's too much, too much out of the way. It has to be convenient. Second, for the right context, the world says, you need to be in control, which means you need to be certain of the outcome your love is going to have. If you're going to step out and love, make sure it's going to have your desired effect, which includes, of course, reciprocation. 
When that's in place, when those are in place, the world says, when you have a context of convenience and control, that's when you love. And one way to test whether we operate out of this worldly resource is to consider how we think when we're presented with opportunities to love others. Chances are, almost involuntary, we look to this worldly resource. There is a loving thing presented that we could do. And first we think, is it convenient? Will it work? And when your resource for loving others is that, guess what? You're going to be bad. We're going to be bad at loving one another. Because that's a fleeting resource. And it's especially absent in the midst of hardship, like the hardship that the Christians Peter is writing to were in, or like the hardships that we face in a pandemic-exhausted, grossly divided, self-consumed society. The context that we live in says to protect ourselves. It says to vilify anybody who's different from us or who disagrees with us. It says to always make sure that the benefit outweighs the cost. And Peter just cuts straight through that junk and he appeals to something way deeper than any context. He says, Christian, love one another because you are a Christian. Love one another because you have been set apart for this. Love one another because you have been born again by a gospel that will outlast whatever this world is throwing at you, church. If we are looking there, if, if, if we are leaning on the resource of our new life in Christ, we will love one another at a capacity that we did not know was possible. It's true. It's true. And here's the deal. I don't know exactly what that looks like. None of us do. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but I want that for us. Amen? Like, I want that for us. I want us to love from that resource that Peter describes, our new life in Christ that lasts forever, which means every day we start by thinking, I am set apart to love. God, I, am, I, am, I am a Christian. I am set apart as a Christian to love. God has caused me to be born again to this new eternal life in Christ. Now, because of that, how can I gladly meet the needs of others? That is how we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that's what brings us to the table. It's pretty obvious, I think, that to love like that cannot be fabricated. This is a love that God works through us by the Holy Spirit. And it goes back to when God showed His love for us in the cross of Christ. As the Apostle John says, we love because He first loved us. And that's what we remember at this table as we eat the, the bread and as we drink the cup. We receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That, that is the true power behind our love. And so if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you have believed the gospel, if you have been born again, we invite you now to eat and to drink with us and to give Jesus thanks. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.